0: On a holiday weekend, we were fortunate to get Mary Jo Meadow this uh, weekend. She has a busy schedule, just came back from a retreat in New York, and a couple other things have been going on in her life. She has a retreat coming up actually uh, in early August at the Benedictine Center in Northeast St. Paul. If people are interested, I left some of her flyers for the uh, resources for ecumenical spirituality on the table up here, and there's also some downstairs, too. So some of you probably heard Mary Jo speak maybe almost two years ago when you were here. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, And she spoke more specifically then about St. John of the Cross and uh, how he really is a Dharma teacher, not a Buddhist Dharma teacher, but a Dharma teacher nonetheless. And uh, for those of you who know Mary Jo, she's been leading. Christian Vipassana retreats for quite a while, with some uh, priests from the Carmelite tradition. Is that right, usually, Carmelite tradition? And uh, she's also ordained as a Catholic nun, and has done extensive Vipassana practice at IMS and other places. And uh, did you ordain as a Theravada nun for a while? So has an extensive background, both in the Catholic and also in the Buddhist tradition. Really fortunate to have Mary Jo. Professor for a number of years at Mankato State before she retired, and now is living uh, in one of the northern suburbs. So she's around when she's not traveling.
1: <laughs>
0: Welcome, Mary Jo. Thanks for Thank coming. You. And so your title of your talk tonight is Buddhist, Christian, karma? Oops, okay. Maybe you don't remember either. You probably need to know I this. think I might have. Karma and rebirth, Buddhist and Christian.
2: That's close to what I have here. Okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> <enough. laughs>
0: So just to remind of the schedule, you can talk as long as you'd like. Usually people talk between 35 to an hour, and then time for discussion or questions. People might. It should fit
2: in that period of time, and if not, I'll cut something out.
0: (laughs) And just and I'll add lib if it's
2: not enough.
0: (laughs) And we have treats afterwards, so I'll remind us when we're done. But keep that in mind.
2: I just thought of a wonderful use for this cushion. I didn't want for my feet get this a little bit closer perfect there you go. Um, as as Mark pointed out um, interfaith spirituality has been a major interest of mine for a long time and so my talk tonight does wed Buddhist and Christian themes together and uh, the title I have here is awful close to what I gave Mark it's on karma rebirth and purgatory so it takes
1: uh,
2: a bunch of those themes I apologize to those of you who know a lot about karma if I repeat some things that you already know, Uh, but to be sure that everybody's on the same page, I need to say some things about it to draw my parallels to the Christian tradition. And I want to start with mentioning that, of course, you're the exception to this rule, I'm sure. But most Westerners really badly misunderstand the idea of of karma, which is a very complex and subtle teaching. And in fact, it is so subtle and complex that the Buddha said, if you really spend time thinking about it, trying to understand it, you'll drive yourself crazy. So if that was the Buddha's position, certainly that should be good enough for us. The word itself, of course, karma simply means action. The law of karma refers to the effects of chosen actions as they later bear fruit. So it's a law of moral cause and effect. This teaching is very similar to Christian teachings about sin and its effects. And teachings of rebirth and purification are very much like the Christian doctrine of purgatory. Going to start with a few words about Jesus. Some people think that Jesus had no teaching on karma. They get hung up on the word karma and assume he had no teaching. But he spoke a lot about the effects of moral choices. His teaching on judgment, according to charity, is a teaching on karma. And in a quite lengthy discourse on how all sin will come to light and needs to be accounted for, he said, quote, I tell you solemnly you will not get out till you have paid the last penny, close quote. Sounds a little more strict than Buddhist notions in a way. Elsewhere, he hinted that the forgiveness of sin after death is possible. He said, sin can be forgiven, but that the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this world or in the next. So although many Christians think the book is closed, your fate is sealed at the time of death, this quotation from Jesus certainly suggests that there's the possibility of more to happen after death and there was one striking scriptural story where the disciples asked Jesus if a man was born blind because of the man's personal sin or that of his parents Jesus didn't say that that was erroneous thinking he just said in this case it has another reason the apostle Paul said all our works will be made manifest and tried and those who fail the test can still be saved But it will be as one gone through fire. So church teachings that purgation comes with suffering then lay the basis for later doctrines on purgatory, which is another Christian teaching on karma and rebirth, which we will get to in a minute. Now comes some of the Buddhist stuff that you might know and you might not know. Uh, Volition is the key to understanding karma. And all acts that we engage in begin with a mental act of volition. What we're intending to do determines the karmic effects of actions. For example, Buddhists are not to intentionally take the life of any sentient being. However, if you accidentally step on an ant and kill it, no karmic effect occurs. For karma to accumulate, you must choose to kill the ant. And we're responsible for all of our volitional actions, even those we didn't realize were harmful. Like if you don't think it's any big deal to kill an ant and you kill the ant, you're still responsible for it. All ignorance is culpable. In fact, the Buddhist tradition even considers a harmful act more blameworthy when we do it without knowing that it's wrong than if we did it knowing it's wrong. So I didn't know doubly convicts us, first of the unskillful behavior, and secondly of ignorance. And if we think about that, if we know that something we're doing is out of bounds, we can recognize the harm done and choose otherwise in the future. And we're also less likely to be wholeheartedly throwing ourselves into doing it. Something pulls back just at least a little bit. But when we're ignorant of harm that we're choosing to create, rectifying our conduct is much more difficult. And we're also more likely to engage in it wholeheartedly, giving the action a greater force in its effects. As I said, karmic effects are not simple to understand, but popular notions are far too simplistic, such as believing that someone born blind in this life must have blinded someone in a previous life. That kind of of one-to-one is not how karma works. The simplest approach to understanding karma is by how we understand other laws of cause and effect. Each moment of certain conditions sets up the conditions of the next moment. This understanding supports all of our science and the laws that govern matter, life forms, and mind. And in fact, you m- may or may not know that B- the Buddha actually defined laws of cause and effect for matter, um, mind, and life, living beings, uh, long before our sciences even thought of, of doing so. And the law of karma is another of his laws of cause and effect that govern all of conditioned reality. And karma works just like these others. Each moment of intentional action. Conditions are set up the next moment in the chain of cause and effect governing choices. Each moment of choice creates effects that produce the kind of mind and world we will have in the next moment. Sometimes we can see pretty immediate and very obvious external effects of our choices. Um, I used, when I taught Eastern psychologies at the university, I explained it to my students very simply. The choices you make about studying are going to affect your exam grade. That they could understand. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, the grade will reflect the reality that they have chosen to create by the choices they made about studying. If we treat another person cruelly, we might use, lose a good relationship. If we lie, people start trusting us. If we steal, we might even do time in prison. Some of it's pretty straightforward. We can sometimes get by without obvious external circumstances, but every volitional choice always affects the mind, always. Every choice bends our inclination ever so slightly in one direction or another. Justice once won't count is not true. Another way to word this is to say that our choices gradually form our character. When we surrender to a discordant impulse, it becomes easier to surrender the next time. Every helpful no to ourselves makes it easier to say no the next time. Um, Choices always have this consequence. How we handle choices then conditions the next moment in our mind, and inch by inch we grow ourselves in some direction. We can trace the development of both good and bad habits of choice over our lifetime. And if we're insightful enough, we can also see how these choices have created the life that we have. They determine the realities we create for ourselves. Uh, The popular saying, what goes around, comes around, uh, catches that belief. Karmic effects come from the type of mind we've developed. The opening statement in the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of reality. Choices are not the only conditions that determine our fate, because other laws of cause and effect are also operating but the choices make considerable input. If nothing else, they strongly affect the attitude that we take toward our lives and what happens to us. And this, in turn, is a major cause of how much satisfaction we have in life. The Buddha clearly pointed out our trappedness and the way we get free of that trappedness. And how he talks about how we're conditioned really mirrors the thought of contemporary behavioral psychology. But there's one important difference. The Buddha taught that we can break this chain of conditioning and free ourselves. And behavioral psychologists, it just keeps going on. The habits that we have formed is how we've conditioned ourselves by the choices we make. And we get locked into being kept in wrong choices. But we have several points of freedom. And the major one lies between the feeling tone of an experience. And you might have heard this translated feeling or sensation. It's the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality with which every experience impacts us with some hedonic tone, ranging from very unpleasant to very pleasant. And our task is to learn how to be with the pleasant without grasping how to be with the unpleasant without wanting to push it away, strike out at it, be sad because it's happening, or in other words, aversive reaction to it, and to stay fully attentive when experience is neutral and doesn't grip us strongly. And when we can become highly aware of this hedonic tone of our experiences and willing to feel it without getting reactive, without going off into greed or aversion, we eventually break our conditioned reaction to it. And the beautiful thing about our practice is that we can see all of this in slow motion when we're sitting, so we can actually see how the reactivity comes out of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of an experience. And eventually it starts carrying over into the way we we live our lives, because we've gotten sensitive to how we operate in that regard. Because you know that John of the Cross is my biggest uh, Christian interest at Carmelite Monk and Friar, um, I want to point out that he had a very similar teaching, and he called it first movements. He said you have to catch the first movements within yourself for which you are not responsible. And of course, we are not responsible for feeling tone. That's a given. We can't control that. But just as the Buddha said, John also said, we are responsible for what follows after that. If we accept the invitation in the first movement or in the feeling tone to unskillful behavior, then we're responsible. So when we can see first movements are the feeling tone of our experience, um, we can work toward breaking our conditioned reactivity to it. Now, in Buddhist teachings, the effect of choices is not confined to one lifetime. And this is where it starts to get a little complicated for Christians. Um, So far, they would say, "Okay, I can understand all of that. The Buddhist teachings say we sometimes might see effects of choice in this life, but some of the fruits of our choices might ripen in a later lifetime. Just as the body's matter decays according to the laws that govern it, consciousness continues on after death according to the laws that govern it. And the last conscious minute in one life conditions the first moment of consciousness in the next. And this ongoing process of consciousness bears with it our karmic effects, all our volitional habits of mind. Um, I like the way IMS teacher Michelle McDonald puts it, the things that our mind is sticky for, the kind of of mental habits of of either annoyance or impatience or irritation or greed that our mind is sticky for. But there is a subtlety here. This process of consciousness continues, but not all of what I call me does. As I say, the matter just decays and gets recycled to be used by other beings. And um, physicists tell us the amount of matter in the universe is limited, so it's constantly recycled. The thought has often occurred to me that maybe part of what was once my mother's best friend is now part of what I call me in in this recycling um, of, of matter and reuse of it. Um, so some previous embodiment of this consciousness determined the hereditary, heredity and circumstances of this being. So they say you are the heir of your karma. It was like inherited, this being. Inherited the karma, the condition that the consciousness was left by the previous being that it was a part of. Um, now when we die the process of consciousness that is part of our being now uh, will be reborn as part of another being Uh, so this is why they say nothing reincarnates there's rebirth but it's not the same being going on and on it's just the consciousness that continues And according to the karmic effects there, builds the kind of circumstances and all of that next being. So truly, this is an error of something that somebody else made. We just hope to leave it in better condition when we're finished with it for the next person who who, who will inherit what we have um, created of ourselves. Um, This is important because it means that we can't blame anybody for their hereditary heredity circumstances are weaknesses physical mental or moral they inherited it all as we did each of us we inherited the package that we have to work with but it does define what our work in this life is going to be whatever we inherited and hopefully as I say we'll pass a better inheritance on so when somebody refers to my karma it's shorthand for all of that much more complicated understanding now the teachings say that the circumstances of rebirth depend upon the state of consciousness at death. And, of course, that will usually reflect how you have lived, although there are some delightful stories in the scriptures where something happens at that last minute to bring a wonderful outcome that you wouldn't expect from how somebody had lived. Um, but the mind, the state of the consciousness at the time that we die is is going to be the result or the effect of choices made over the whole history of that consciousness from former lives as well as the immediate previous one. And it might at some time favor the ripening of karmic seeds from a previous life. So the conditions of rebirth aren't specific actions that we have engaged in, but the quality of mind that we have developed by our choices of actions to engage in. It's been an important difference You can say every choice we make is like planting a seed. And not all seeds ripen. Other conditions are necessary. But if you want a mango, you better plant a mango seed and not an acorn. The seeds we plant then will affect the quality of mind at death. And this determines the conditions of the next birth. And this quality of mind has been building for many lifetimes. Can't point to any one occasion or any one lifetime as the sole basis for this conditioning of the next rebirth. The idea that the state of mind at the time of death determines the fate in which we will next find ourselves is very similar to the Christian idea of a judgment at death that's going to determine what happens next. Now, the official teaching was heaven for those who are ready for it. some kind of additional purgative experiences for those that aren't quite ready for heaven but not bad enough for hell, and then hell for those that are in really bad shape. That's the traditional Christian teaching. Um, purgatory, heaven and hell are pretty permanent in, in, in the Christian teaching. But purgatory, this very indeterminate teaching about purgatory that I'm going to be saying even more about, Um, is not a permanent state, just like all the Buddhist realms of rebirth are not permanent until we're finally ready to die into nirvana. There are certain choices we can make that the Buddhist tradition says make weighty karma. And weighty karma will always manifest. So there's a few things that you want to do and a few things you want to be sure not to do uh, because of this weighty karma. Even the lowest level, the very first level enlightenment experience, produces a mind that will never be capable of creating a less than human rebirth. So that's a very important step when you have that first touch of nirvana. The mind becomes incapable of engaging in any kind of action, making any kind of choice that would produce less than, than human birth. So partially enlightened beings will always be reborn as human or higher. Um, parallel to the Christian tradition, since enlightenment is a touch of nirvana, it's similar to saying that those who have had experiential knowledge of God will never be able to turn their backs again on completely on God, do something that could put them beyond the pale. Now, what don't you want to do? Well, killing your parent or a fully enlightened being creates circumstances of mind that inevitably will next create a hell realm and that's a particularly vicious and long-lasting hell realm Um, it seems to me that when i was much younger i didn't hear much about people killing parents but in the past 15 years or so it seems it's like all over the place people are you in the newspaper somebody has killed a parent and And I think about this teaching every time I see that. And it's it's a very troubling thing, because according to these teachings, a mind that's capable of making that kind of choice can't do other than create a hell realm for itself in in the last minute of of consciousness. Um, People who don't have weighty karma usually die as they've lived. So the type of mind that we're habitually cultivating across our lifetime is going to be likely to form our dying moment and create the situation in which consciousness will take rebirth. (laughs) That's one reason why Buddhists believe in helping dying people draw out positive mental characteristics, Uh, reading scriptures to dying people, chanting with them, or reminding them of their good deeds, which creates a happy, positive mind that's focused on the good that they have done, um, are all actions that help them die in a wholesome state. Um, It's a goal that's similar to that of offering Christian sacraments to a dying person. But of course, dramatic transformations at death are rare in both uh, traditions. So we should really count on everyday building what we hope to have at the end. I'm going to move on now more to emphasize the Christian side of of teachings. Um, We've seen that both Buddhists and Christians hold that those who die less than completely finished have to undergo some kind of further purgative or purifying experiences. Buddhists explain this in Rebirth. And many in the early Christian church also believed in rebirth for purgation. A church council was called that declared it a no-no to believe in this. But the validity of that church council has been questioned because it was in the times when it was good for a pope's health um, not to make too many waves against the people who had, had power, And this council was called by bishops without the sanction of the pope. And he was later told, um, if you want a nice, long, happy life, you're going to ratify this. And that's not exactly how it works. So the pope ratified it, but um, leaves it iffy in many people's minds. And um, pretty quickly, though, they started realizing they had a problem once they had declared that rebirth doesn't happen. What do you do with all the people who aren't finished when they die but aren't bad enough to put in hell? And so over time, a teaching called purgatory evolved. If any of you find this an interesting topic, for some reason I found it a fascinating one. Um, the very best book that I found was written by a Frenchman named Le, Goff, L-E capital G-O-F-F, called The Birth of Purgatory. And a lot of my material on purgatory comes from um, Legoff. Um, early church fathers urged praying for the dead that they would be released from their sins and jewish writings of the same period contain similar notions and across the whole christian tradition uh, such thought continued the 8th century venerable Bede urged us to suffer for the dead and of course many spiritual traditions have similar teachings now Here's, here's a part that I found very interesting. Some early Christian writers, including Pope Gregory the Great, had visions showing that the dead expiated their sins here on Earth where they had done their sin. And in fact, Pope Gregory the Great said that it was his opinion that purgatory occurred back on Earth. And later Christian apologists like Bonaventure, um, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, said that the place of purgatory is indeterminate, but it must have various locations. Sounds an awful lot like rebirth to me with a new name. And I'm going to pause for just a little aside here. I think a major, major problem for interfaith understanding is that we get trapped in our concepts. And if the same thing is being described, but it's pegged with a different concept, by traditions, they say, oh, different, can't meet. What I'm trying to tell you is, I don't see any difference between what Buddhists call rebirth and what Christians call purgatory. I mean, it's the same idea. This something that needs further purification reappears in some other circumstance so it can happen, and evidently it keeps happening until you're finished, you know? I don't see the difference. Um, I've had people tell me problem between Buddhist and, and Christian understanding over the fact that um, Christians, uh, Buddhists, Buddhists don't have a concept of grace. Well they might not have a concept of grace but they've certainly got some s- parallel concepts and that's a, a whole other talk um, but um, that's another one that I've run with and had a lot of fun with like I've had with purgatory. Um, so um, just just a little... Uh, reflection on how very, very wise it, it is of the Buddhist tradition to caution us over and over and over again not to get hung up on concepts and mistake them for realities. They're just thoughts in the mind, the concepts. They're not what they designate. And you can not if, if you can't get to the level of the lived experience of people, that's where you're going to see that no matter what concept someone has hung on it, that's where you're going to see if you're talking about the same thing. Um, how's that saying go? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a dog, <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, I mean, doesn't matter what you call it. Uh, so now back to. What I was doing. The notion that the dead have impurities needing purgation did early establish itself in the church's belief, but no doctrine on purgatory was formally declared for some time. It was just left sort of a condition for being purified that you might eventually come to God. Not until the Second Council of Lyon in the late 12th century did purgatory become a special place. Now, when the church named purgatory a place over which it had control, um, this gave it a wide range of new powers over the lives of people. And purgatory became a major tool of social control and of combating opinions that churchmen in power didn't like, which they called heresies. Uh, Heresy is an opinion that the people who held power didn't like. And they managed to sort of drum them out all along the way uh, by having a church council that declared, no, you can't believe that anymore. And that happened to across the whole history of Christianity. It actually started way back with Constantine, who wanted um, unified opinion in his empire. And when he chose Christianity as the official religion for his, his Roman empire, it was in the attempt to oppose uniformity of belief and that was when there started being all these church councils that drummed out many many different versions of Christianity which were extant at that time um, some of which I think we lost with, with um, a lot lost when they went um, uh, some of the apocryphal writings that have turned up like the Gospel of Thomas which is particularly beautiful So Buddhist
3: um uh were, were lost
2: because they were called Gnostic Christianity and Gnosticism was a no-no you know so um we always we have to look at all the forces that militate how a particular spiritual tradition will evolve over time and how it will land on what it says is an okay place to be and a not okay place to be and so anyway back to purgatory now so they, they had this tool to to use as a tool of social control and getting rid of more heresies. And of course, most of us who remember our history, even the least little bit, remember that it culminated in the scandal of the sale of indulgences that split the Western church. That was one of the major um, reasons why, why some Protestant groups could, could no longer uh, abide with Rome. Now, some Christians find it disturbing that Buddhist thought looks too many lifetimes before reaching our final goal. But as I I think argued pretty effectively, it's no different than Christian teachings on purgatory. Purgatory is just some state or place where purifying that's still needed after this lifetime takes place. Clearly, it could be seen as another lifetime or a series of lifetimes between this lifetime and finally coming to God in the end. And the church has never made any statement at all about where purgatory might be, just that it was a place. So um, I'm saying we can call it a place of rebirth, or many rebirths, a place where we reappear in another form of existence. And the purpose of purgatory is the same as Buddhist rebirth. It's kind of like a penal sentence that's caused by the impediments that are still in us to coming home. So it's a benign condition of doing time, because it's offering us additional opportunities to finally get it right. Across Christian history, many brilliant minds and honored mystics have held that the purgative process could be seen as a series of rebirths or states of experience and over which a person draws nearer and nearer to God. And this is according to the spiritual work that they do and their willingness to be purified by that greater wisdom that we know guides our practice, certainly. The poet Dante, uh, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with his divine comedy, um, broken into three parts, inferno, hell, purgatorio, purgatory, and paradiso, uh, paradise. And he described different layers of experience in both hell and in purgatory. Um, that some of which are amazingly similar to some Buddhist realms of existence. So the poet had a maybe a, a glimpse of this. So I'm starting to yes, we're going to be about 40, 40, 45 minutes. I'm starting to draw. Perfect. If he says between 35 and an hour, so I'm starting to draw some things <laughs> together here. Um, the basic ideas that shaped understandings uh, that shape understandings of purgation are very simple. They assert that most of us die unfit to go home to the ultimate reality, whatever you're going to call it, whatever concept you're going to hang on it. And they also say that existence benignly gives us a chance beyond this lifetime to prepare ourselves. From this simple belief found across numerous spiritual traditions, various stories are written about how such a process of purgation or purification might occur. All of these formulations are secondary to the intuitive understanding that further purification is both necessary and possible. People not only believe that most of the dead need more work, but also tend to believe that we can help them with it. Buddhist practices like sharing merit and Christian practices like praying for souls in purgatory and as such uh, reflect that kind of a popular belief. Um, merit, <coughs> merit uh, if, if you're not familiar with the notion of sharing merit, merit is that which makes us shine within. And it's acquired through various acts of piety, virtue, or spiritual practice. And um, we know that doing these things makes us happy. They do make us glow within. And so the act of sharing merit could be seen as having a similar thrust, really, as metta or loving kindness practice. It's wishing for others the happiness that, that um, doing skillful um, actions has, has brought into our own lives. Buddhist teachings state that from all the possible realms into which beings are reborn, the human one is the best for our purgative work, because it has just the right mixture of pleasure and pain. Not too little pain as the heavens, with no motivation if things are too easy, Um, and and not too much pain as in the lower realms where you're just overwhelmed by it and and can't, um, can't get it together because you're dealing with the pain. I, I gave this lecture. Like, we had uh, my nonprofit corp, R.E.S., to which Mark referred, had a house in Missouri that I ran um, for a number of years. I moved back here a little over two years ago. Uh, my kids, they kept telling me I'm too old to be down there in the middle of nowhere in the woods in Missouri. Um, they finally got me back here. Um, but we held small retreats there, and I rem- and I love cats. I have four cats, lovely creatures. And I remember I was talking about karma and rebirth at, at one of the retreats. And I was talking about the realms of existence and saying the animal realm is like the, the next lower one below us. And it's the, considered the first suffering realm. And one of the retreatants snorted and said, yeah, unless you're a cat in this household. <laughs> and that's probably about the way it is with my cats. I do love my cats. Um, but in any event, um, so we're, we're in a good place, and we're reborn human. Many Christian saints and mystics have also spoken of doing purgatory on Earth, saying we can choose to do now what we have to do eventually, and it's much easier than it would be to do it later. So we can take that into Buddhist practice, too. Why wait? Start cleaning up our act, because if we just keep bending ourselves growing in a wrong direction, it's going to be much harder later on to come back from a farther distance than and from a smaller one. So we start growing ourselves in the direction that we want to go. And we each have tasks for this lifetime that are based on the karma inherited. However, I want to point out that the most obvious disease in our being might not be the root task. A sexually promiscuous person, may more need to learn not to fear real intimacy than to control their sexual energies. A habitual liar might need to learn trust. Someone who compulsively steals might need to deal with deep feelings of deprivation and insecurity. Uh, Someone who drinks excessively may need to recognize unfilled spiritual yearnings. A murderer may need to learn compassion for herself. Our bad actions come out of the pain within us, and again, there's not necessarily a one-to-one relation Although certain kinds of pain within us tend to bend us towards certain kinds of actions that cause havoc in the world and are therefore unskillful behavior Uh, So we need and our practice will eventually show this to us We need to find out what the root task is that's spurring our poor choices that we make and we also learn that when we truly know our own minds, we know all minds. We all contain the seeds of all possibilities within us. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful poem when he put it that I'm both the young girl who throws herself into the sea after being raped, and the sea pirate who's not yet sensitive, the con artist and his victim, the dragonfly and the person who crushes it. Uh, this lovely poem of his um, is found in many of his works. So, in conclusion, the bottom line is the same. Both traditions, Buddhist and Christian, teach that if our life ends without sufficient purity to die into God or Nibbana, we have more purifying experiences to make this possible. And again, To understand this, we have to distinguish between religious mythology and the underlying truths that the stories are created to express. The basic positions that I just stated, held by many traditions, but the stories that they write to explain how it works show differences that are shaped by culture, politics, and other conditions. That's the nature of religious mythology which is always secondary to human experience. We must act on the basic truths that underlie the stories to find our freedom. So teachings on karma, rebirth, purgatory, and purification show us how to get free of impediments that make us continue to suffer, free of either rebirth or purgatory. And they teach us how spiritually hungry hearts can finally find their rest and their satisfaction offering the joy of finally being purged of clinging to all the obstacles that keep us from our final end. And I'm done. I'll take questions. 42 minutes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, just a, I just want to make sure I heard, I heard you right. Did I hear you say that the being is not reborn, but it is the consciousness that is? Is that correct?
2: Yeah. And the the, uh, the best analogy I've seen for the way they explain it is, if you think of the consciousness as the flame on a candle, the flame consumes one candle, which would be like one embodiment, and then transferred to a new candle. It's not the same candle going on, the the, the flame is passed on as part of the process of candle-burning with with a new material candle that that it's illuminating and i think that's that's a good analogy so it's there's no thing that is passed on the process of consciousness with each moment conditioning the next when kalu rinpoche the great tibetan buddhist master was dying and his disciples were raising a great clamor around him He put up his hand and he said, enough of this, stop. Nothing happens. And what he was trying to tell them was nothing happens that hasn't been happening all along anyway. Each moment of consciousness conditions the next, conditions the next, conditions the next. And the last minute in one lifetime conditions the first of a new lifetime. So. That was a question I
1: wanted to ask, too then to follow up with so when you reach purification or you reach nirvana if this flame has just been going along mm-hmm. what's the reward nirvana What? Oh, who, who gets it what is
2: it what they say is in, in the last m- moment of consciousness in this lifetime the mind fixes on what comes next so like you'll have a a vision or an understanding of where you're going next. In the person who is completely finished, fully enlightened, the mind fixes on nirvana. Um, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of adjectives in the scriptures, like haven, rest, home, freedom, the putting out of, of, of the fires of desire, the perfect satisfaction, perfect. I mean, it's like your problems are over. The c- problems of the consciousness are over, you know, and uh, tons of, of wonderful adjectives describing. But I mean, they they say you know the, who who can tell you because nobody comes back here to tell you, you know. But that's what the teaching is. John of the Cross, by the way, one second, my favorite Christian mystic John of the Cross says that that when the utterly pure die, they die into God, and I kind of like that, the parallel idea of dying into God and dying into nirvana. John of the Cross, by the way, and this is still, a, still yet another talk that I give, John of the Cross his notion of what he calls the substance of the soul, which sounds very much like a thing, it's not a thing at all, and it really makes wonderful sense put alongside Buddhist teachings on no-self. They Wonderful parallels. You're on. Oh, it was me and I can't. Oh, wasn't it wasn't you? I thought it was you.
4: Yeah, it was me. I know.
2: Okay, anyway, um, I've seen, you know, my parents die. I've seen a couple people
4: die, including my father-in-law, and the look on his face at the last moment Life. Like, can I come too? I mean, it was—I like, mm. was, was just amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so I really related to to what he said about that. Although he wasn't necessarily the kindest person, I must say, in his living of life. So you know, who knows? You don't
2: know what he worked out near no, the I end. Know, of course not. <laughs> My father was two and a half years dying. I can't tell you how many times we got the call. This is it. You know, come. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as are three quarters filled with fluid, nothing can. And doggone, next thing you know, he's going on. And he was in a lot of torment at the end there. I think he was working out an awful lot of things for himself. And when he finally let go, I, I think he probably had something worked out that he was ready to let go. That you was know? Also true of my so That's maybe that right, was yeah. what was happening.
4: Now I have to say, my brother always oh, he says he wants to. B-ring. he wants to come back or be reincarnated as my sister's dog because
2: she's so she felt easy on her dog. A cat in my household would work too. <laughs>
4: have you
2: written any books? Uh yeah, I have um five, six books. Um uh we wrote uh, it's th- this one is out of, of print now. It was called Purifying the Heart, Buddhist Insight Practice for Christians but Wisdom Publications is reissuing it, and it's going to be called Christian Insight Meditation. And uh, this is actually one of the chapters from it. Like I have the chapters on the no self and John's substance of the soul, and and but it, it, there's four new chapters, and these are some of the new chapters that are are being added to it. And um, I'm. I'm finished with all but two chapters of it, and I'm finishing them up. And they told me about a year after they get it before it's out, and it'll be called Christian Insight Meditation. Um, have
0: you have the, the old one downstairs in the library.
2: You have the old one downstairs. You have one of the. You can't get it anymore. Um, when Crossroad, who published them, was bought taken over by Herder and Herder, they changed the direction and they let our things go out of print. And that one was almost out of print, so we couldn't get a bunch of copies. Um, I wrote a book on loving kindness practice for Christians, and that I bought up some copies that author priced them before they let it go out. So I have I have some of those for sale. Um, I have a book on faith. It's an interfaith look at the idea of faith. Um, um, the others were earlier they were somewhat more scholarly like a psychology of religion textbook uh, a book for a religious publishing house on for women on how to get along with difficult people I mean they were more scholarly things the, the, the last three are the more spiritual writing ones and, and there will be the I have a book on John of the Cross and Buddhism finished but I haven't found anyone to publish it yet
1: uh, I think i an interesting day because I spent the day with Steve Batchelor. He's, I, mean, I suppose, the foremost exponent. Uh, is a Buddhist writer and scholar of what I call early modern Buddhism, which means, in his case, discarded both rebirth and karma. Um,
2: Who did you say?
1: Steve, I assume you Steve Batchelor. He's oh, oh, yeah, back. Stephen Batchelor, yes. <laughs> well, he, part of his Buddhism is discarding uh, karma and rebirth. So it, coming here, I thought, well, you know, I have to go back tomorrow. I thought, maybe. might be. Interesting, although I'm kind of cleaning up. But the question I have is that is that you, uh, you talk about consciousness persisting beyond death, which means that unlike the body, which is matter and energy and doesn't persist beyond death, you set up a dualism, a non matter, non energy mind.
2: I didn't set it up. That's the Theravadan
1: teaching well, of this like school. The Buddha himself in the 14 unanswered questions wouldn't answer whether. Body and mind are the same, yeah. it's different. Um, but it's certainly a Western, of a Cartesian tradition. Uh, doesn't exist much anymore because of the problem of interaction, interactionism, which is that no one could explain how a non material mind could interact with a material body. So, mm-hmm. how does a body's action affect the mind? How does the mind affect the body again? Uh, so, if you, know, if you have an answer to that, you should write it.
4: Uh, Well, they they don't exist
2: in isolation. Well, I mean, you can have a body in isolation, but it's inanimate. They don't exist in isolation.
1: I'm just saying, mind is not a substance that exists in the natural world. It's something else. And so it it doesn't and can't interact with substances in the natural world, like the body and energy.
2: Um, I don't think that's quite right on they they, they say that we're made up of, of three components matter, consciousness and mind states which are like mental formations and emotions and the housekeeping functions of mind and all of that um, any way anybody is going to explain how we're put together and if you go to a different religion they'll say we're put together in a different way and I think the basic teaching is simply that Something lasts, and that something can eventually go to bliss. That's the, bo- the, I mean, no, the very bottom
1: line. I yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I tend to go to science to explain this. Yeah, I, well. I don't, I don't find you know this non-material thing existing anywhere on the world. So
2: yeah. That's right. does doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, it, those questions don't bother me. Um, and I can understand that they bother some people. And as they say, all the explanations of how these things work that we put around a few sort of basic beliefs that people tend to hold, um, I don't worry about the explanations of how it works. I just get to what seems to. And is it is a true belief or not that people seem to? Go, how do I know? You know? I don't know. I don't know any more than anyone else about that. I have a conviction that there, there must be something to it based on, well, just a number of things. I mean, even based on, I mean, the idea of the continuity of, of, of consciousness, as they explain it, even based on meditation experiences that the easiest interpretation would be past life experience. Uh, based on meditation, uncovering early experiences in this life for me that made sense of so much of my life that I hadn't understood before and, and going back. So based on all of these kinds of things, it seems to me that there is some truth in it, but I don't have any wisdom beyond anybody else's to know. And how it would work and how it would fit with scientific findings and all of that maybe that's the next frontier the the Big Bang Theory gives a wonderful thing about how creation could have occurred when that those seem like utterly incompatible positions to hold at one time um, and even fits the hindus creation uh, I mean the, out of the Brahman comes the own which goes out into the the big bang the big sound which goes out into other things um and people once thought creation and hard science was impossible to reconcile yet there are people doing it in some ways now so maybe that's the next one someone will reconcile i'm not a scientist to do that i don't understand the science side of it and to do that but who knows maybe before we die someone will I'm a little hard of hearing, and I hate my hearing aids, so I don't have it in. Well, if I heard your question, you're saying something has to be continuous, right? No, I said we don't find them separate. I didn't say they cannot. I said we don't find them separate.
3: Right. But wouldn't there be another component
2: necessary then? Well, um, to me, no. But um, as I said, even if you take what John of the the, the Christian notion of soul would be that thing, I guess, to which you might be referring. It's another long talk, but if you look at what John of the Cross called the substance of the soul, it basically boils down to being a capacity to receive experience of God. And that makes it sound an awful lot like the consciousness to me, which is a capacity to receive experience. The consciousness just knows, just receives experience. That's all it does. And for me, that's enough that there's a receptivity of experience that seems to... Continue on that can eventually receive experience of God or Nirvana or whatever you would want to call it. That's enough for me. I mean, what would you do with the notion of soul if it were a thing? Is it a permanent thing? Well, if it can't change, how could it grow in in love of God or grow in in in, in Christian terms? Or if it were a thing in Buddhist terms, how could it be modified? And if it's changing, then it's a process and not a thing if it's, if it's changing. And if it's a process, what kind of process is it? Well, what about a process to receive experience? And that's what the consciousness is. So I mean, it's enough for me. Maybe not for you, but for me, it is. OK? Um,
5: how do you think about consciousness and soul
2: Oh, gee, that's an hour-long talk.
4: <laughs> I said
2: there's another whole talk or another whole chapter in the book. Um, but bottom line, just what I said, a capacity to receive experience. But there's a lot of talk around that to make that make full sense, I guess. But a capacity to receive experience. Do you
5: see them as being parallel or comparable?
2: As John of the Cross talked about substance of the soul, and it's substance, it sounds like a thing, but it's his scholastic theology where substance is what lasts and endures and an accident is something that comes and goes. So what he says basically is what is enduring of us is really we're empty at our core, according to him. It's a capacity to receive experience. And so you could say we're empty at our core, according to him. And the consciousness has no content or anything either. It's empty in that it just receives experience. But um, there's lots of things John said about the substance of the soul to, to back all of that up and, and how all this works. Because they say it's an hour-long talk, or at least 35 minutes, <laughs> as long as this. Um, I understand
4: that this is not your background or training, but. Um, I come from a fairly conservative Protestant background where no notion of purgatory exists mm-hmm. at all. And I think also where a notion of human both capability and culpability are, I think, um, for lack of a better phrase, I mean much harder, if not stricter, in their notions in terms of that human beings are much more culpable than I think. Um, at least got right after we talk tonight. And our capability for fixing our problems is much less Mm-hmm. And I think either Buddhist or more traditional Catholic notions exist. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how to sort of reconcile those notions. Because for me, um, and the Christianity I grew up with and Buddhism oftentimes see very much at odds as opposed to with each other as opposed to, what I hear in your talk, which is more traditional Catholic notions, and I can see how those two yeah. parallel each other back. But I don't see as any any nearer in parallel more
2: traditional Protestant notions. Yeah. The notion of purgatory really developed more after the Protestant split from from the the Catholic but it was there as something out of which all of the rest of Christianity grew. Uh, I by the way didn't grow up in this kind of a Catholic family. I grew up in a Catholic family but it was very legalistic, moralistic, rigid and you you um You cross your eyes in church and you might go to hell, kind of um, thing. So, there might be some similarities between the way we grew up. Um, I found this, I started having fights with my parents about religion early on. Um, I remember I I already told a few people this, telling my father, I was about 10, 10, 11, 12 years old when I told my father, if God's how you say God is, I don't want anything to do with him. You know, and. that brought the house down, of course. Um, there are more benign understandings of God than that kind of religion has, of course. I, as I understand it, the, the very fundamental Protestants, it's kind of like what you got to do is tell Jesus you believe in him, and he makes it all right at the last minute for you. Um, and um, I don't know. That, that sounds as much like magic to me as... A lot of the way many Catholics look at their sacraments, and I have, I have trouble with, with magic, so't that kind of religion I couldn't get with with my parents, and I can't really get with it. And I agree with you, it's not as compatible um, with Buddhism, and I haven't really worked on trying to do that because I've looked at strains within Christianity that seem amenable to a, a more of a, a wedding but my condolences, I know what, I know what, I've done. well, no, I'm not, I, and actually the book that I wrote on faith grew out of my own struggles with the kind of religious upbringing that I had, and um, at one point, um, I was convinced I had absolutely no faith at all, and I hadn't ran into a number of helpful priests who said, well, if you've lost the gift of faith, you must have done something wrong. (laughs) And, And until I finally came across one who said, oh, the problem is you don't understand what faith is. Faith isn't believing certain opinions are true. Faith is wanting God so much that you live your entire life seeking God. That I could understand, and that I could get with, and that's very close to Buddhist understandings of faith—that trustful confidence in setting out on, on the path that you want to follow. Um, but that that book came out of my um, out of my own pain, so it was. It's it's got bits. It's not largely autobiographical. It Has bits of stories, mostly dealing with my father. Um, and, and, in fact, he was one of the, the dedicatees because I called him a, a worthy adversary on the issue. And, um, uh, but, um, my condolences, I've been there.
3: <laughs> You've been talking
4: about consciousness, this seems kind of more on an individual level even though I know you see this as a larger system. System maybe not being the right word, but a larger view. I'm wondering if you could comment on uh, a kind of more social view of karma, in the sense that we seem to have had waves in history when things got really bad, and other waves of history where it seemed like some of the better of people came out. And um, I'm not terribly optimistic about the current wave that we're in. And, um, uh, but I'm just wondering if you could comment on a more social sense of karma.
2: Is there such a thing as, as collective karma? In other words, yeah. sort of. Of course, I mean, I don't know, um, but I do know. I do know that we can get to places in our our meditation practice where we clearly see we are not separate, isolated little monads, and that we're all processes within processes within processes, which. But that everything that any one of us does is going to affect that larger whole also. It's not just a me fixing me thing. It's a me embedded in something much larger than me and that everything I do works to the good or the bad of the larger whole also. And that's about as far as, as I could go with that idea. Um, but I certainly think when any group of people, when the weight of the whole is creating unskillful behaviors and 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 is in very unwholesome places, it certainly drags down the whole body that all are part of. And we no no single one of us can fix everything. We can each just do what we can do. One thing we can do is try to clean up our own little part of it and then do whatever else we seem to be drawn to do. I fell into the trap in in my 20s of thinking I could fix everything in the world if I only threw myself into enough causes. And I've I've gone past believing that now. And I know there's some things I say, nope, that's not my thing. Yes, this is my thing. So we um, we can't fix it all. But but I do agree. I, too, I I I have grieved over the direction that I see my country going. And when I travel abroad, I'm I'm ashamed to say that I'm an American because of of, um, the way we're mistreating the whole rest of the world and a lot of our own citizens, the, 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 the decline in what I call truly spiritual values in favor of narrowly defined fundamental religious values and um, I I grieve over that um, but I as much as I can do with that you, Mark you're to tell me when I'm supposed to stop
1: <laughs>
2: no I, that wasn't a plea Just, I, I, could, I could do this all night I love to talk about these things but I, he has he has timetables I know so he's going to
3: it's
0: <laughs> already
3: Question cause you had talked about heredity and that kind of made me uh-huh. think about uh, baptism, you know, um, inheriting karma and baptism being a way of shh, wiping the slate clean so you're starting from, from scratch. Because my husband really wants to have our children baptized and I'm, you know, fine with that, but it, it seems to me he thinks it's kind of a magical way of making sure that they go to heaven.
2: Yeah. Well, I think like this is another of those parallels. Um, we look at ourselves and we look at people around us and we say, hey, I mean, we look at I've, I've got a, a three and a four year old grandchild uh, one 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 three, a three year old and a four year old. And I look at him. I say, boy, it's like human beings are, are bent are born with something out of kilter because they You know, the one just got through with everything her parents wanted her to do. It was no, you know, and and all of this. So we look across history. People have looked at at ourselves and our own inclinations and urges and people and say, we seem to be born with something a little bit out of kilter, like we're sort of bent toward doing things that aren't so very helpful. So why are we this way? Well, so Buddhists say, well, karmic effects from previous lives. Christians say, ah, original sin. So again, I think it's an explanatory concept that's thrown on a human experience of recognizing um, how human beings seem to function. And I think a better way of looking at original sin is that we we seem to be born with different temperaments and different bits but we also everybody who has hold of our minds when we're young and vulnerable can warp us slightly this way or that too and then we start making warping choices ourselves and that's how we sort of dig ourselves deeper in but my definition of original sin is is the mistakes that parents make um, with their children and that passed on from generation to generation and I mean, I look, I look back as a parent and I, I see the mistakes I made and i see mistakes my parents made and I see mistakes my children are making with theirs, but I keep my mouth shut because uh, I want a good relationship with my daughter-in-law. Um, but um, it, it's like n- there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And, and so the mistakes we make... Warp our children a little and just as we were worked a little so if you want to protect your children from original sin try to be as good a mom as you can uh, but know that you're going to make mistakes too um, but I'm not going to get between you and your husband you got <laughs> that one you got a deal I saw another one back oh two
5: um, I had a question about that was sort of along the lines of scientific evidence for you know your soul and all that stuff. And I guess I'm looking for sort of scientific knowledge or exploration of whether there is uh, reincarnation or whether your soul does hold together. Um, I find it kind of fascinating that a lot of the, I've been reading a lot about theoretical physics and I find it kind of fascinating that a lot of the discussion in here about your soul and your energy moving on in your consciousness as opposed to your soul. A lot of that stuff is being talked about in theoretical physics. And um, I would just encourage everybody to read as much as they can about that kind of stuff because I think you'll find it very fascinating. But I'm just wondering if you know of any books or any um, um, knowledge that people have that is more scientifically based about people's energy moving from one life into the next life. Is there such it- I
2: haven't actually. That I, my, the fact that I don't know doesn't mean it isn't there right. because that's not exactly the direction that I've gone in, in a lot of my study. I have read a few books about, about rebirth or reincarnation, uh, which there's a slight difference. Hindus call it reincarnation, like something goes on, Buddhists, I explain rebirth. I have read some books with stories that are interesting. Um, I don't know if you know that... Um, out at ims and i actually got a copy of this there's a, a tape of chants in a dialect of, of Pali that a young boy in what was sri lanka wasn't it a young sri lankan boy started doing these chants when he was three or four years old and the, the it was sort of like poly but not quite the and so they, they they taped it and they sent it to scholars who it was a dialect of poly that was used in in buddhist monasteries um at some point earlier and this young kid just spontaneously starts right. doing these chants i mean there are things like that that people talk about like where did this come from right. you know so uh so i i have, i have anecdotal stuff like that but i haven't yeah, no, studied anything scholarly about it now loud enough that corner of the room i seem to have trouble with <laughs>
3: How you die in your karma.
4: And you come, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's no scientific conclusion, but sometimes I think people that die in a terrible way or a long process, that that's
3: like their purgatory.
2: Mm. That's, uh, many Christians have said that. That's what I think I saw my father settling a whole bunch of scores in the. Two and a half agonized last years of his life, in a way. And it wasn't physical suffering. It was mental suffering he was doing, um, but whether it was physical or mental. Um, I, I think some of us do. Like, something decides to get some stuff settled before we can let ourselves die. Some of us, not all of us. Yeah, I think that's a very plausible notion. And, and I really think I saw it play out in my father. And I know some of the things that he was concerned about. My father made some serious mistakes. And, um, um, and he was worried about those. He was worried about some things that I wouldn't consider a serious mistake. He was a little bit afraid God was going to be upset about the fact that his children didn't turn out to be the kind of Catholic he thought he was supposed to raise them to be. And I really don't think God was going to be upset about that. But, um, <laughs> He did, but, he, but the, he had some other serious issues that I would agree with him were, were issues that had to get settled. So maybe.
0: We have time for one more. Anybody else has a question for me, I have a question. I, I have this discussion. I find this discussion so crawling because my concept
3: of faith is so intangible. And when people bring in the necessity for scientific evidence, in a uh, spiritual aspect of their life, have you given some
2: thought as to what is that hole within human nature? Um, I got you up to have I given some thought to
3: have, have you read anything or given any thought as to what is that hole within human nature that needs or needs explanation? Um, why is it so difficult for us?
2: So oh, I. I I'll go to my friend William James first American psychologist who wrote some wonderful stuff um, I think people are different and I think that's the difference when I said it doesn't bother me that I don't have the science on it he, he divided people into tender-minded and tough-minded he said the tender-minded are willing to accept things that seem plausible to them without an awful lot of evidence the tough-minded want prove it to me, show it to me with evidence." He said, the tough-minded are more afraid that they might be duped, and the tender- minded are more afraid that they might miss out on something because they didn't accept it. Um, And um, so that was William James' answer to that. Um, I don't know if he's right or not, but but it seems to make some sense to me yeah that, that we, we, we differ in how tender minded and how tough minded we are. He also wrote some wonderful things about consciousness, by the way, that are, are very Buddhist and I don't think he ever read anything Buddhist. He he hit on he hit on some ideas. Um the the whole notion of that intention that I spoke about and he said and he said past a certain point choice is over and it's automatic and that's exactly what the You know, you let an intention reach a certain point in our Buddhist psychology, and willing is over. It's it's automatic. From it just flows if you let it reach a certain pitch. So, he wrote some interesting things. Thank
0: you so much, Mary Jo, and thank you.